Hey, I'm Ellen from Jacksonville, Florida. Hey, I'm Cody from Edmonton, Alberta. I'm Eric from Nashville. Bullseye with Jesse Thorne is produced independently and supported by listeners like you and me. You should support the show like I did. Just visit MaximumFun.org slash donate. I'm Jesse Thorne. You'd be hard-pressed to find two bands with more divergent sounds than the jam band Fish and the horrorcore rap duo Insane Clown Posse. But they actually have something in common. Each of them has a deeply passionate following. And conversely, deeply, deeply passionate haters. Music journalist Nathan Rabin immersed himself in both bands' worlds, and the process changed him. He kind of figured out the value of unconditional love. I feel like we, in our culture, we have this uh, skepticism about people being too excited about things. I feel like there's, you know, a, a small list of things that decent, respectable people are allowed to be over the moon about. You know, your Louis, your um, Mad Men. And when people are unbelievably excited about something that not only doesn't seem great on the surface, but seems weird. Like, I think there is this, uh, this, innate, like, this innate suspicion of, like, why are all these people into this thing? I think... Working this, writing this book just made me more of an enthusiast. It's Bullseye. Fish and the Insane Clown Posse. Suffice it to say, not my thing. And I don't think I'm alone. But when Nathan Rabin tried to write a critic's look at these bands' worlds... He found himself sucked in. You know, I kind of went from kind of seeing everything from the outside, you know, from writing this <laughs> was originally meant to be kind of an anthropological book, more of like a sociological text. Who are these people and what's wrong with them? To becoming kind of a story of fandom uh, from the inside out. Then later, I talked to Benjamin Nugent about another American subculture. You know, Dungeons and Dragons players, historical reenactors, ham radio enthusiasts, nerds. Ben is the author of American Nerd, The Story of My People. His book looks at what the word actually means. The uh, definition I came up with, actually, was that nerds are people who are basically really good with systems and rules and rational systematizing ways. Ben and I will talk about the nerds' place in culture, early literary characters like Victor Frankenstein, television phenomena, like Steve Urkel, and even rockers like Elvis Costello. Plus, find out why you should watch or maybe revisit Michael Mann's Dark and Beautiful Thief, starring James Caan. That's all this week on Bullseye. Let's go. It's Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. It's easy to pick on the rock band Fish, and even easier to pick on the rap group Insane Clown Posse. In both cases, pretty much everybody who doesn't love them hates them. And most of the haters have honestly never heard the music of either. The hatred isn't musical, it's cultural. Nathan Rabin is a music critic who dove into the worlds of Fish and the ICP. He went in skeptical and he came out a convert. He likes the music and he loves the communities these bands have built around them. Let's get a little flavor of the song that launched him into this strange world, Insane Clown Posse's YouTube smash, Miracles. Music is a lot like love. It's all a feeling, and it fills the room from the floor to the ceiling. I see miracles all around me. Stop and look around. It's all astounding. Water, fire, air. 
air and dirt. Nick oh, Magnus, how do they work? And I don't want to talk to a scientist. Y'all sit up for the lion and getting me Solar eclipse and vicious weather. 15,000 juggalos together. And I love my mom for giving me this time on this planet. Take nothing for granted. I seen a caterpillar turn into a... Nathan Raven's new book is called You Don't Know Me But You Don't Like Me. Fish, Insane Clown Posse, and My Misadventures with Two of Music's Most Maligned Tribes. Hey, Nathan, how's it going? It's going great. My original uh, title for the book was Music is Magic. <laughs> you can't even hold it. <laughs> <Yeah. laughs> well, to be fair, you, uh, you chose uh, some selections from the song Miracles that are rather silly. When you first became obsessed with Miracles, which came out in, what, 2009, 2010, something like yeah, that? Yeah, about that. Um, That's when everything changed, what, both for me and for the world. What did you know about Fish and the Insane Clown Posse? I, all I really knew about Fish uh, was that uh, if you go to college anywhere uh, in the Midwest, on the West Coast, on the East Coast, anywhere basically in the universe, in the 1990s, if you wanted access to strangers' marijuana, you had to listen to the music of Fish. And they'd be like, oh, man, have you ever seen them? They're really good. I got some bootlegs and stuff. And you'd be like, yeah, yeah, okay, I can tolerate this music as long as I'm high. So that was really my only association with Fish. What, what about ICP? You've been writing about hip-hop for the AV Club. Wh- what, did you, what did you know about ICP? I knew that they were the most reviled band in the entire world and that their fan base, known as Juggalos, basically became kind of this very cheap, lazy shorthand for white trash and for rednecks and for math addicts and basically this idea of, like, the worst white people in the world. Um, and... I am guilty of judging these groups without knowing anything, of having these you know, sort of snarky, reductive uh, preconceptions. In my memoir, I actually make uh, pretty uh, snarky digs at, at both groups. So I didn't really know anything about that. And that's kind of weird because I am a connoisseur of things that are supposed to be terrible. I am a connoisseur of things that are weird and reviled and on the fringe. So that should have been in my wheelhouse before. But for some reason, it took miracles, and it took them kind of reinventing themselves as this weird, um, quasi, you know, socially conscious uh, act that, uh, yeah, to kind of, for it to really take, for me to really fall in love, to become really fascinated uh, by this weird world. So Insane Clown Posse are veterans in the clown makeup-based music (laughs) game. Um, and I want to play. I want to play a song of theirs from from their best of album that I think typifies what m- most of their records were like uh, up to a, a few years ago. Um, this is called My Axe. <laughs> my ex is my body. I never leave without him. Uh-huh. Me and my ex will leave your neck a bloody fountain. Chip, chip, So, I mean, basically, it's a song about different murders and murdering. Um, and, and Insane Clown Posse are, for those who don't know, these these two guys now uh, sort of middle-aged in scary clown makeup who started as professional wrestlers. Well, started as drug dealers. They failed at that, then became professional wrestlers. Did well, all they, right at to, that. To, to be fair, they had a street gang. Uh, yes. And it was not a very successful street gang. No. Um, but they had the same, uh, insane clown posse, uh, had the same initials as the uh, inner city posse. That's what they were called before. So it was a very natural uh, transition to go from the street gang, inner city posse, to the musical act 
uh, Insane Clown Posse. So tell me about Insane Clown Posse's worldview. What do they stand for? Well, the thing that's interesting about them is I feel like a lot of their music is sort of like a, uh, a hell house, uh, you know, those Christian haunted houses. Uh, you know, documented in the uh, documentary uh, Hell House. And the idea is to try and terrify uh, believers into following a righteous path by showing them all the horrible things that will happen to sinners. And Hell Houses are kind of campy and over the top and not intentionally so. Um, but they're designed to impart a moral lesson through this sort of gothic imagery, through these kind of horror movie tactics. And that's kind of what Insane Clown Posse is all about. Uh, they have this elaborate mythology uh, called the Dark Carnival that is rooted in Judeo-Christian uh, mythology, um, but has this, all the characters and this idea, and you know, the idea is to uh, ascend to Shangri-La, which is just like heaven or paradise, but cooler because you know it's full of juggalos, uh, and to avoid the torments of uh, Hell's Pit. Um, so there was this very elaborate um, dark carnival mythology um, that was. Illustrated through the Joker's cards, which were these pack of cards. See, it sounds silly when I say this now. It, to be fair, it is silly. <laughs> it is silly. That's it why it true. sounds silly. It does sound silly, yeah. But it gives the, it gave them something beyond being being a rap group, and it kind of uh, expanded kind of their universe. And in the '90s, they had kind of this curious existence as <laughs> the enduring shame of the major labels. Uh, they kind of went from label to label. They're kind of failing upwards. Um, and every label they had kind of reviled them. And I write pretty extensively about Violent J's memoir, Behind the Paint. And it's really fascinating. And it's really honest and raw. And he really makes himself seem so vulnerable and kind of sad and lonely. And I think that's one of the things that's kind of ingratiating about them is there's this veneration of screwing up and being a failure and being poor. And at that time, especially in the 90s, you're talking about like the uh, heyday of, of Diddy and Mace and, you know, the shiny shoot rap and this deification of wealth to have people saying it's cool to be poor. It's cool to be an outcast. It's cool to be reviled. I think that was very, very liberating uh, for a lot of uh, misunderstood uh, tormented adolescents. Can I ask you one thing? Am, I'm not mistaken in thinking from having listened to their songs that um, at rapping, they're <laughs> awful. They seem, they, they seem to be awful rappers. I would, I would counter that. I think there are different kinds of rapping. I think, you know, they would never be compared to Pharaoh Manj. Uh -huh. But, you know, part of it is like I, I enjoy their music. <laughs> and I didn't enjoy it from like, you know, a detached, ironic kind of standpoint. I just enjoyed it from the standpoint of like, this is just fun music. This well, is enjoyable. I, I, I think the production uh, is really fun. You know, it's, it's poppy in a way that people don't generally acknowledge. Uh, I think in part because what? people associate with Insane Clown Posse is this kind of horrorcore that is, you know, maybe more rock-influenced, maybe a little more jarring, a little more assaultive uh, and aggressive. Um, but yeah, I'm <laughs> I genuinely like uh, the music of Insane Clown Posse. And it's kind of weird that you're the first person to challenge me uh, on this. Um, I guess everybody else just kind of assumes so that they're inherently good. It's Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. My guest is the culture critic Nathan Rabin. He recently embedded himself in the subcultures of two much maligned musical groups, Fish and the Insane Clown Posse. His new book is called You Don't Know Me, But You Don't Like Me. So I, I want to switch over to Fish for a moment, the community of which you profile in the book. Right, right. 
Fish are a notably virtuosic band in in contrast to um, the Insane Clown Posse. Their their appeal musically seems to be very different. Um, let's take a listen to a, a song that you write about sort of surprising yourself enjoying several times <laughs> in the book. Uh, this is a, a cover by Fish of Stevie Wonder's Boogie on Reggae Woman. Across the floor, I like to do it to you till you holler for more. I like to so, tell me what fish stands for in your mind. What are they all about? Well, for me, uh, when I was feeling very alienated, I was feeling very alone, uh, I was feeling very. Uh, isolated. I kind of felt like I was kind of uh, trapped in this prison of self. Um, and I think part of it had to do with kind of the culture uh, that we inhabit. It's all very virtual. Um, and then to actually go to see fish, it was incredibly freeing. and It was incredibly liberating. It was this world where nobody is judging you and nobody is looking down on you. And there was just a sense of joy um, and exhilaration and, and freedom that was really, really healing at a really, really difficult kind of stage in my life. And I remember actually listening to Boogie on Reggae Woman uh, for the first time at a fish show in Miami in 2009. And this was first concert and thinking, this is ridiculous. Like these white men in their 40s should be embarrassed uh, to be covering this, you know, Stevie Wonder song. Like this is just so wrong. Like I hope I never have to listen to this again. And over the course of my journey, it went from being this thing that was like, oh, why are they doing that? That's just wrong. To being something that I loved, that I savored. You know, I write my book that, you know, I kind of wanted them to play that song for me uh, every morning uh, as I woke up. So I think that was a big part of it. Was it it came to symbolize something for me, and I think it comes to symbolize something for a lot of their fans. It's more than just the music. It's this whole way of life. It's this whole, you know, sort of um, exit and escape from the mundanity of the day-to-day. You know, I kind of went from kind of seeing everything from the outside, uh, you know, from writing this <laughs> was originally meant to be kind of an anthropological book, more of like a sociological text of who are these people and what's wrong with them, to becoming kind of a story of fandom uh, from the inside out. I want to ask you a question about the experience of seeing a fish show. And um, it's one that plays directly into stereotypes about fish and its fans. But... How much of the feelings that you describe of being in this non-judgmental world, um, enjoying these super long songs, you know, enjoying the guitar pyrotechnics, yeah. is about drugs? That is a good question. Uh, and I'm not going to lie to you. For me, that was uh, a big part of the appeal. Um, I'm somebody who uh, enjoys using substances. And I hadn't used uh, LSD, like a lot of responsible people, since I was in college. And I took LSD uh, when I saw a fish at Bethel uh, Woods in uh, May 27th, 2011, kind of the concert. That's kind of a lot of the core of what my book is all about. And it was really, really useful, I think, in part because LSD 
changes your perception of time and it makes you more patient and it kind of gives you this kind of grander view uh, of the world and that's really useful when you're listening to like a three and a half hour concert that's really useful when you're listening to a 16 minute song uh, that part of your brain that says okay it can end now um, that doesn't really exist anymore and again it's not you know I don't want to overstress the drugs but that definitely is a big part of the experience, a big part of the culture, and it was a big part of my experience and a big part of why it felt so liberating and why I was able to uh, not only find myself in this world, but find a sense of freedom and release and a sense of joy. Both Fish and the Insane Clown Posse have huge annual festivals. Fish is called Super Bowl, um, and the Insane Clown Posse is called the Gathering of the Juggalos. At the Fish Festival, it's notable because it is essentially a series of very long fish concerts. Um, so, you know, like where most festivals would have a variety of headliners, because Fish does so many covers and such long versions of songs and so on, they just do a series of big, huge concerts for their fans. The Gathering of the Juggalos is both famous and infl- in- infamous in popular culture um, for being just a- completely insane. Just a world of madness. And I, I want to play a little bit of this song uh, from the Insane Clown Posse's album, Bang Pow Boom, called Juggalo Island. And this this song has a wonderful video where, <laughs> um, you know, the two insane, the two guys from the Insane Clown Posse are, you know, it's sort of like a backyard barbecue uh, G-Funk video from 1996, but it's taking place in the gathering of the Juggalos. So there's all these people in clown makeup. Uh, doing backflips into pools and stuff like that. <laughs> so l- let's take a listen to a little bit of that song. I got my toes in the sand watching Dwarf play volleyball. It's summertime and I'm feeling jolly all food on the fire. Boats in the water and taking time off from my cereal slaughter and here for the weekend. Me and these friends, sunny sunshine, blue skies never end. There's a mermaid waiting me to come in. Underwater on my foggy summit, smoking on a flat one. We come to have fun. It's basically as sweet as a song could be that has a line about a man's stuff being in a hot dog bun. I think one of the other thing that's kind of interesting about that song, um, it sounds kind of like a Sugar Ray song. Like, it's so poppy and so silly and really kind of speaks to this whole kind of juggalo ideal of everybody else hates you, everybody else reviles you, but you can come to the gathering and you are king. It's a total, total fantasy. I mean, it's almost like, you know, this kind of Beach Boys uh, style you know, their take on, you know, the California uh, fantasy is kind of like what Juggalo Island is uh, for the Juggalo uh, nation as well. And I think there's kind of a, a sweetness uh, and an earnestness and a sincerity to a lot of Insane Clown Posse's music, to kind of the culture that people miss because it seems so uh, outrageous. It's, it's so transgressive. It seems so violent. And it seems so ugly. It seems like at the gathering of the Juggalos, one of the positive things uh, uh, about creating this world is that it is a refuge for all these folks who, um, as, you know, as I said, are getting kicked in the tail by other stuff. And one of the ways that they do that is by creating near total anarchy. And that has negative consequences. Like, people get stabbed every year and stuff. Yeah, people do. Uh, It's kind of this world. It's kind of this lawless uh, world. And there's a story in my... um book about how uh, there's a drug bridge that is a very central feature uh, to the gathering of the juggalos and you actually have to go 
through the entrance, through the drug bridge to get to like the main attractions. You have to go through the drug bridge to get anything. And there was a woman who had a cardboard sign that said uh, Boston Yayo, $70 a gram. And that's what people do at the, at the gathering. They have cardboard signs about the drugs that they want or the drugs that they're selling. And the security guard uh, came over to her and goes, $70 a gram. Damn, why you be trying to rob a juggalo? And it was very, and first of all, just the way he said it was very, very funny. And that phrase, damn, why you be trying to rob a juggalo? But it also kind of spoke to this very upside down world uh, where <laughs> the people seemingly in charge, the authority figures aren't, you know, kicking you out for selling drugs. They're like giving you, they're giving you crap for uh, charging too much. So that can be really, really interesting and exciting and freeing. It can also be kind of scary at times. After a break, find out what it was about Nathan Rabin's childhood that made him identify so closely with Juggalos. It's Bullseye for MaximumFun.org and NPR. Bullseye is supported by MailChimp, building technology for people and businesses around the world to design and send email newsletters. More at MailChimp.com. MailChimp, email marketing for everyone. It's summer now. And come September, you're going to wish you had stretched it out just a little bit longer. So, get planning. Hop on a boat with Mark Marin, Eugene Merman, Cameron Esposito, Dan Deacon, John Roderick, John Darneal of the Mountain Goats, and a ton of other great comedians and musicians. And we've got a new addition to the lineup, Wyatt Cenac. It's the Atlantic Ocean Comedy and Music Festival, September 13th through 16th. Set sail from Miami into the Bahamas for music, comedy, and, of course, shuffleboard. Tickets available now at BoatParty.biz, a real website for a real event. The Atlantic Ocean Comedy and Music Festival is sponsored by Splitsider.com and MailChimp. I'll see you in the high seas. It's Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. My guest Nathan Rabin spent years with fans of the Insane Clown Posse and Fish to find out why they don't just love these groups. They live them. Rabin's new book is called You Don't Know Me, But You Don't Like Me. In listening to Miracles, the much mocked, I mean, broadly mocked uh, Insane Clown Posse Universally mocked. I remember listening to it when it was first starting to go viral and thinking two things. One was, wow, they're terrible rappers, <laughs> honestly. But the other thing was there was something really amazing. I mean, people were reacting to it as though they don't know and don't want to know how magnets work because there's a sort of jokey line about that. But what the song was really about was you know, dropping your defenses to the marvel of the world. And I I think that that's also not far from, it seems to me, like what the ethos of of Fish is, that, you know, I mean, they both may involve some illegal drugs too, but just going into a place where you won't be judged for being who you are and you can celebrate the beauty of art, even if it's ugly art in the case of ICP, or over long art in the case of fish. Totally, totally. And I feel like we in our culture, we have this uh, skepticism about people being too excited about things. I feel like there's, you know, a, a small list of things that decent, respectable people are allowed to be over the moon about. You know, your Louis, your um, madmen, uh, this sort of uh, hallowed like, set of things that are, are supposed to be great. And when people are 
unbelievably excited about something that not only doesn't seem great on the surface, but seems weird and wrong and kind of repulsive or, in the case of fish, kind of pointless and interminable and crunchy. And, like, I think there is this, uh, this, innate, like, this innate suspicion of, like, why are all these people into this thing? Um, and, yeah, I think kind of when you let go of that and when you let down that sense of – I think also – Working this, writing this book just made me more of an enthusiast. I came to be somebody who just wanted to love things. Um, and I think I became less critical um, and more just kind of open uh, to these new experiences and these new ideas and these new worlds. You were um, diagnosed during the course of the time that you were writing this book with uh, as bipolar. And it seems like you you happen to be traipsing down these two roads during an incredibly difficult time in your life. Um, do you feel like spending time in these worlds transformed you personally? Yeah, I do. And I should probably also mention that I was the head writer of the AV Club, and I was writing a coffee table book uh, for Weird Al Yankovic. Uh, while oh, was... And having a personal debt crisis all at once. Yeah, 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 that I was. Um, I just bought a home. Uh, like, yeah, kind of everything in my world uh, was kind of like violently rupturing um, sort of at the same time. What was your question again? <laughs> the question was, were you, do you feel like entering these worlds transformed you? Oh, yes, 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 I, I definitely do. And I definitely feel like, you know, there was a, a pretty profound transformation uh, over the course of writing the book. Over the first year uh, that I attempted to write it, I just failed. Um, and I couldn't find a way in. And I tried to do things, you know, from like a more detached, kind of ironic, a sardonic, uh, even a little bit snarky uh, kind of perspective to be sort of this outsider. And I went on all these experiences uh, that I didn't end up writing about in the book. I went on um, <laughs> the Kid Rock Chillin' the Most cruise. Uh, I went on the Jam Cruise. I went to the Disco Biscuits Festival. And these were all like really interesting, um, surreal experiences that I just couldn't find a way to write about, uh, like, authentically or entertainingly in a way that made sense or cohered or, you know, uh, connected things the way they needed to be connected. And I just, um, I was terrified that I wouldn't be able to find that connective tissue, that I wouldn't be able to crack this book, that it would be a mystery that I couldn't solve. And then when I went to see Fish in Bethel Woods in uh, the end of May in 2011, I felt like going there and having this transformative, this transcendent experience, uh, the first night of tour, like that changed things. And I understood that like the universe <laughs> was not going to publish, punish me for my hubris. Like I'd screwed up. I made a lot of mistakes, but there was a way for me to finish this book. And it was by connecting with people and it was by opening myself up. And it was by uh, sort of abandoning some of my crippling self-consciousness and, you know, my ego and my narcissism and my need to kind of insert myself in everything and just kind of like letting uh, letting the universe in. So I definitely feel like it transforms me um, as a person and I feel like it transformed me as a writer as well. I want to ask you one last question about the Insane Clown Posse. I, you know, a couple of years ago you were on the show to talk about your memoir, The Big Rewind. And um, I know from having read that book that, um, you know, you grew up uh, partly, maybe substantially in the foster care system. Um, yeah, from about 14 to 19. Yeah. Um, and you, um, you know, you had a weird, you had a mix of, of 
you know, being in a position where you where it was assumed that you would go to college, but also where your like roommate might physically attack you, <laughs> um, and uh, and not and you didn't have any money to speak of, and nor did your family. And um, I wonder if that gave you. And I imagine that much of your life you've fought to be a person that watches and enjoys Mad Men. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like a culturally and uh, a member of the cultural elite. Uh, yeah, and the, I've and, been praised in the New Yorker and the you know and the and the financial elite and so on and so forth. Um, but I wonder if if part of your sympathy for this world of the ICP comes from the fact that. You actually have some idea of what it's like to be an alienated teenage Midwestern poor person. <laughs> oh, totally. I mean, I was, you know, as I write in the book, like I was a follower. <laughs> you know, I had no identity of my own. I just wanted to be accepted. I want to think the right thoughts. I wanted to see the right movies, read the right books, listen to the right music. You know, sort of my gods were, you know, Roger Ebert and, and, and Pauline Kael and uh, Grill Marcus uh, and all these people who were respectable and Jean-Luc Godard. And that was wonderful, you know, and I'm really appreciative that I found those people and that I, I gained that appreciation for art. But I very easily could have gone down the other path. You know, I very easily could have become a juggalo. <laughs> you know, like if, if, if I had had that kind of transformative experience, if I'd like, I don't know, had a really cool juggalo friend who I started hanging out with and we'd listen to the music and smoke pot and be like, oh, there's kind of something to this. And then I'd go see a show and be like, wow, that's kind of awesome. And they sprayed me with Vago. And like that might have been something that, that would have uh, appealed to me. So I definitely think that was part of my um, sympathy for juggalos was that I identified with them. I identified with their uh, poverty, identified with their sense of being alienated. I sensed, identified with their sense of uh, feeling ostracized and outside of uh, conventional society. And basically, since I, I started uh, writing a column called uh, My Year Flops in 2007, kind of my overarching uh, project as a writer, as a pop culture writer, was to try and redeem uh, stuff that is maligned, uh, to try and uh, articulate the values of things that people dismiss out of hand. And I didn't really realize it at the time because it took me a year to figure out what I was doing writing this book. And I had to, you know, literally uh, bash my head open uh, and open up to the world to kind of uh, figure things out. Um, but uh, yeah, I think I definitely, I found my inner juggalo. <laughs> And that is how I was able to to write this book and for it to feel authentic and genuine and, you know, like something that of value and not like I'm wasting everybody's time and money and energy, primarily Scribner's. Well, Nathan, I sure appreciate you taking the time to be on Bullseye. It was great to talk to you. No, it was great to talk to you as well. Nathan Raven's new book is called You Don't Know Me But You Don't Like Me, Fish, Insane Clown Posse, and My Misadventures with Two of Music's Most Maligned Tribes. Every week on Bullseye, we're joined by our favorite critics to recommend stuff worth your time. This week, we're joined by our comics critics, Brian Heater and Alex Zalbin. Hey, guys. How's it going? Good. Great. So, Brian, I want to start with you and your recommendation, a book called Aesthetics, a Memoir by Ivan Brunetti. I think people might recognize Brunetti's work if they saw it perhaps from the covers of The New Yorker. Um, that he's done. There's, as I understand it, in this book, there is a bit where he discusses 
time he spent trying to draw exactly like the cartoon strip Nancy. And you can actually see it in, in his style. Yeah, I, th- I think that may be uh, the, the highlight of the book for me. Um, Ivan Brunetti, uh, he's, he's been around for a number of years. And, and you know, I think I would call him... Uh, he he, he kind of skirts the line between being, uh, you know, well well uh, revered and, and underappreciated at the same time. Um, he's he's kind of moved over to being a teacher full time at this point. Uh, a lot of that comes down to the fact that uh, he's he's increasingly losing his vision, so he's not really doing comics for the most part anymore. Um, but uh, one of his early attempts at a career was taking over the uh, the long standing uh, Nancy strip for Ernie Bushmiller, and yeah, you can actually see the strip. That he, he he did, and, and for me, the really interesting thing there is that uh, he said that I think that was probably probably the place where he learned the most about how to draw was basically just sitting down and 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 mimicking that style day in and day out. Alex, your recommendation is a book called Red Handed: The Fine Art of Strange Crimes by Matt Kent. Tell me a little bit about it. You know, I, Matt Kent has been doing pretty amazing work for years now, and he's broken into the mainstream doing stuff for DC and Marvel, but it's his indie work that remains the most interesting. And I think what makes this book pop in particular is it starts out as a sto- series of seemingly unconnected short stories about weird crimes. It kicks off with a story about a woman who steals chairs for various psychological reasons. There's a guy who's just kind of carting dirt around and taking dirt from places. So it starts with kind of these almost funny vignettes, and then very, very slowly you start to notice that they're tying together, specifically through this Dick Tracy-type figure called Detective Gould, um, who operates in this town. He's undefeated. He's never not solved a crime. Um, And I don't want to ruin too much about it, but just... Just to say that it's a, there's a lot more going on than people just stealing dirt. Alex Zalbin recommends Red-Handed Strange Crimes by Matt Kent. He's a producer for MTV Geek and the host of Comic Book Club for The Nerdist. Brian Heater recommends Aesthetics, a memoir by Ivan Brunetti. His column on Boing Boing is called The Comics Rack. He also hosts the podcast Recommend If You Like, R-I-Y-L. Thanks, guys. After a break, I'll talk to Benjamin Nugent about what makes a nerd a nerd. Plus, find out why you should watch or, or maybe revisit Michael Mann's Thief, starring James Kahn. Stick around. It's Bullseye from MaximumFun.org and NPR. Hi, I'm Jesse Thorne, the host of NPR's Bullseye. And I'm Jordan Morris, another guy. Jordan and I have been friends for a really long time, and we co-host the comedy podcast Jordan Jesse Go Together. Jordan, what would you say Jordan Jesse goes all about? Well, uh, it's about funny stories, um, crazy ideas, swearing. So basically nothing. Yeah, nothing. But we always have fun and funny celebrity guests from the worlds of comedy, television, music, everything. I think you're actually going to like being radio friends with us. Yeah. Check out Jordan Jesse Go online at MaximumFun.org or free in iTunes or your favorite podcatcher. It's Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. My guest on the program is Benjamin Nugent. He's the author of American Nerd, The Story of My People. He wrote it in 2007 when nerdy stuff wasn't quite as mainstream as it is today. After all, The Big Bang Theory is now one of the most popular shows on television, and girls are walking the streets with T-shirts that say, Talk Nerdy to Me. Ben's book is part memoir and part anthropological history 
of brainy enthusiasts with antisocial tendencies, from online gamers to historical reenactors to ham radio operators. Ben and I spoke in 2008, shortly after the book came out. Back then, I recorded the show in my spare bedroom. I think we should start. You do a very interesting job of uh, defining what nerdiness is. I feel like everyone has some idea of what the word means. It must have been a challenge to kind of think of what, what the actual definition is. It did take a while, and my point of departure was the Wikipedia definition and figuring out why that sounded correct, but actually didn't match up with what I decided most people's intuitive sense of what a nerd was, um, gave me a way into finding a definition. What what was the Wikipedia definition? The Wikipedia definition, and this was last year, who knows what the Wikipedia definition is now. I can probably measure the success of my book by how it's changed the Wikipedia definition. (laughs) But uh, the Wikipedia definition was basically that a nerd was a socially awkward intellectual. And... There, I had a few intuitive objections to that right off the bat. One was that uh, it seems like if you're an obsessive Halo 4 player or, or a D&D player 24-7, maybe you're not necessarily an intellectual. Right. And and then... <laughs> maybe. The, the other side of that coin is there, there are ways to be a socially awkward intellectual that aren't really nerdy. Um, and so the definition that I like think... Like owning a dusty bookshop? Yeah, owning a dusty bookshop or, or being an arts professor who whose frame of reference is too arty for people or something. Or somebody I, I think who's one of like a belligerent drunk art professor. Yeah, or you know, being one of those really cool drunken writers who's read every <laughs> book or something. Like there, there are lots of ways to not be a nerd and that you can still be socially awkward and intellectual. And so. The uh, definition I came up with, actually, was that nerds are people who are basically really good with and like um, systems and rules and rational systematizing ways of thinking. And this makes them remind people, sometimes not unpleasantly, of machines. Uh, They're good at thinking in a lot of the same ways machines are good at thinking. And they're bad at thinking in a lot of the same ways machines are bad at thinking. They're not as intuitive in terms of how to be socially graceful. They don't necessarily have a sense of what other people are feeling and want from them. They have trouble with empathy sometimes. One of the things that you write about in the book is that that definition sort of places the nerd uh, somewhere somewhere, uh, a little bit down the line of the autism spectrum and, in fact, kind of dovetails partly with the definition of Asperger's syndrome. Right. Well, Asperger's syndrome is just a bunch of traits that everybody has in a more extreme form. And so, and then more extreme than that is autism. And so, you know, you can be someone who is nerdy and and not have Asperger's syndrome, which is a neurologically hardwired extreme version of those traits that I just described. Um, you could say be obsessive about activities that are all about rules and systems because you, for external reasons you're um, socially isolated and that's all you know, for example, and then change later or something. Whereas Asperger's syndrome refers to a neurological condition. Let's let's talk a little bit about the uh, that the his the history that you write about. Where does the 
What were some of the early examples that you found of these characteristics being represented in uh, in in literature and, and in other areas? Well, I think the very earliest nerds I could find in literature were Victor Frankenstein. Uh, you know, and, and Frankenstein by Mary Shelley came out eighteen thirteen. Uh, classic romantic novel in that it's all about why this guy shouldn't lock himself up in a tower and make a human being out of corpse parts just because it's kind of interesting to do that. And Victor Frankenstein's whole thing is, I want to penetrate the secrets of nature. Uh, He has this drive to penetrate science. And it seems like this very phallic, or I guess philogocentric would be the academic (laughs) way of of saying this, uh, drive. And he cuts himself off from his family, and he's so unempathetic to this creature he creates that as soon as it wakes up and he sees how ugly it is, he's like, Oh man, I'm out of here. I made it. Now I'm gone and abandons the thing essentially. And it's left to wander the world learning English on its own, etc. And so it's that combination of technical expertise and lack of empathy. One of the, uh, as we move through the timeline of history, it feels like the nerd becomes uh, particularly British and American, with the with the rise of a, a certain form of uh, a certain form of Christianity. Can you tell me about that? Yeah, uh, Thomas Hughes and Charles Kingsley were these two English guys. One of whom wrote Tom Brown's School Days, which was um, kind of the nineteenth century version of Harry Potter. It was this hugely successful novel about boarding school and this guy tom brown at boarding school who becomes kind of the champion uh rugby player and defends the little guys from the bullies and a big part of tom brown's school days uh was that you need guys like tom brown these good rugby players to form an empire and the british empire is in its ascendancy these are the building blocks of our empire and so they invented a doctrine called muscular christianity where their idea was the way to be Christian isn't to be nice and retiring and, and, and wimpy like we might think of, you know, a minister in a church being kind of wimpy. It's to be a man of character, an athletic man of character who can put down an insurrection in Burma, for example. Um, and that's how you spread Christianity. And so they, um, they wrote about this a lot and it became a hit um, with the Protestant establishment in the United States. Teddy Roosevelt loved it and it really conveniently gave the Protestant establishment a way to define itself against these immigrants who were starting to get into Harvard. And um, these immigrants got into Harvard because they studied really hard. Uh, They were, uh, in large part, Jewish immigrants um, from, say, the Lower East Side who didn't have any outdoorsy activities on their schedule, but just did really well on tests and did really well in school. And you couldn't really throw them out. And so, um, and so that's how we kind of got uh, a way of, deci- of defining yourself against um, somebody who's too indoorsy, too intellectual, uh, doesn't have enough character. I thought it was very interesting that some of the first examples of, the, uh, of nerdiness that we would understand as being like contemporary nerdiness showed up in uh, humor magazines, in uh, uh, technical and uh, science-oriented universities. Tell me about uh, tell me about how nerdiness started to be defined in the in the forties and fifties and sixties. Sure. Well, in nineteen fifty, we got the first known usage in print of the term nerd in a book by Dr. Seuss called If I Ran the Zoo. 
And the nerd in that book, though, is just a creature. It just looks like an angry little alien. And it's only a year later, in 1951, that we can find Newsweek saying nerd is a Detroit regional slang term for a drip or a square, quote-unquote. Um, and then I found someone who told me that she wrote an editorial in her high school newspaper in 1959 called Leave the Nerds Alone. And it was you know, roughly the same concept that we think of now. But the image, the visual image of that guy with um, the tape on his glasses and the pocket protector and the high pants, that first turns up in engineering school humor magazines in the early to mid-60s. In um, the RPI Bachelor, uh, RPI stands for Rensselaer Polytechnic Institute, and um, the RPI Bachelor was their humor magazine. And uh, during those years, for example, in 1965, they had a parody of the Man from Uncle called the Man from Nerd, uh, and he had a um, like a pocket protector with like a superhero emblem on it, and those big glasses and those high pants. And that was the earliest image I found. Um, of the nerd that that we know from Revenge of the Nerds and all that other stuff. It seems like the 70s were the time when the nerd went from being, uh, went from being, you know, just one of many kind of cultural archetypes out there into being a big thing Mm -hmm. uh, with a capital B and a capital T. Tell, Tell me about how that happened. Well, Saturday Night Live was really important. You know, people had thrown around the word nerd on television, like Fonzie would, would use it in Happy Days. But um, what happened was Elvis Costello, uh, the performer who looks nerdy, had this kind of nerdy outfit, went on Saturday Night Live, and one of the writers, Ann Beats, saw him rehearsing and got this idea for a sketch about nerd rock, was what she said. And, and she created this imaginary duo of, of nerd rockers. And the nerd rock sketch never aired, but... The nerd sketches did, and it was uh, Bill Murray and Gilda Radner, who were in real life kind of seeing each other, um, became um, Todd Dulamuka and Lisa Lupner, uh, this this nerd couple. And they had a very distinctive kind of goat-like laugh, and they wore their pants really high, and, and they had glasses, and, and all the others. They were more or less the same as the Revenge of the Nerds guys. And um, that was when the image really broke wide open, when, when mainstream America got, got used to it. And uh, in fact, one of the dictionaries added nerd shortly after those sketches came on. Well, you know, you really ought to put some band-aids on those mosquito bites you got. Oh, that's so funny, I forgot to laugh. Prom night, prom night. I, I, I envy you kids. I, I know I'll never forget my senior prom. I, the theme was from here to fraternity. Uh, Our theme is close encounters of the prom kind. It's Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. My guest is Benjamin Nugent, the author of American Nerd, The Story of My People. It's a book that traces the history and sociology of the nerd. We spoke in 2008. Ben, tell me about why you decided to make this book um, not just a sociological one, but also a personal one. You know, I think I found that the, I decided that the traditional function of the novel in our culture was to show how the personal linked up with and connect with and was influenced by and influenced the political. 
and the historical. Uh, and I was interested in doing that with a work of nonfiction. And, you know, I originally conceived the book as just a history. And then I found it worked better and made more sense if you integrated um, memoir and reporting. And so it wasn't just my life that I incorporated. I also went out there and interviewed a lot of nerds and, and hung out with a lot of nerds and tried to um, show how the cultural history of the nerd prototype, if you will, influenced how they conceived of themselves and, and how they corresponded to things in that prototype and how they didn't. Among the uh, among the nerds that you went out and talked to were your own peers from school, um, literally the folks that you played Dungeons & Dragons with. Mm-hmm. Um, how many of those folks did you have still have a connection to, uh, you know, whatever it is, 15, 20 years later? None of them. I had to, uh, you know, search for them. Uh, because when I was in high school, I, I very consciously um, separated myself from them and, and wouldn't hang out with anybody who I knew from my nerdy junior high days. Yeah, one, one of the interesting things about it was um, how much more open they were with me than most journalistic subjects will be with you. Because even though we hadn't talked for 15 years, if, if people know you when you're 12 or, or 13, they feel comfortable with you in, in a weird sort of way. It's like those are... I, I guess I'm like reaffirming some kind of like stand by me cliche here, but I think in some ways, like the most viscerally, um, the people you're most viscerally comfortable around are probably the people who are your friends when you were like 12. And um, it, it was really interesting to see that, that was still the case. And it was also interesting to see that nerdiness was still a big part of, of their lives. I mean, I guess it's, it's still a big part of mine because I wrote a book about it. Um, <laughs> but, but um, you know, they, you know, would still do things like, like play Worlds of Warcraft and, and D&D and stuff like that. And in one, the case of one of them, had become an executive at a video game company. And it was, so it was his career. And um, in both of their cases, it turned out that that nerdy stuff, getting together with groups of other nerdy boys was a way out of somewhat if not abusive, extremely chaotic uh, family lives. And so one of the things I, I, I liked about talking to them was I realized how tough they had been as, as kids. And everyone probably thought they were huge wimps because they didn't work out and they dressed like nerds and they did nerdy stuff. But they were really tough kids in a way. They withstood a lot of um, weird punishments um, from their families and, and in addition to how they were treated by their peers and, and came out of it okay. One of the friends that you uh, that you went back and talked to was a guy who is uh, mixed race, who's half half white and half African American, who had I think a very unique experience of nerdiness uh, because of that fact. Um, and, and you, I thought you wrote about it very eloquently. Tell me about how how you think his uh, his race played into his nerdiness and how they interrelated. Well. I think, um, I mean, it changed his life in a lot of ways. I mean, for one thing, you know, I mean, as it later turned out, he, he wasn't half African-American. He was, he was half Puerto Rican, half white, but he didn't know it at the time. He thought um, that the guy who said he was, his father was his biological father. And so he thought he was half African-American. And um, I think it, among other things, um, kind of forced him into a kind of, self-actualization you know what i mean it's like if 
you know, you really don't correspond to any pop culture image that's out there at all. You know, the black nerds on TV were like these absurd caricatures that were supposed to be extra ridiculous because they were both nerdy and black, like Urkel, um, that, you know, you just wind up, you know, walking to the beat of your own drum. And um, I, so I, I think he wound up being kind of unusually wise and, and mature, certainly more than the rest of us. You write about research that's in, in the state of California that suggested that um, in, in part, nerdiness was a sort of enactment of hyper-whiteness. Um, tell me a little bit about that, about that research. Well, there was a very interesting uh, set of articles written by a linguist at uh, UC Santa Barbara named Mary Buckholtz, um, where she went to a California high school. And what she found was that the popular white kids appropriated slang terms that were associated with the black kids, that they said things like trippin', for example. Um, and that the only white kids who did not do this, who did not use any um, hip-hop slang, black slang, whatever you want to call it, um, were the kids who called themselves nerds. And they were kind of marginalized, and they sort of um, consciously spoke in this sort of marginalized way. And so she called that uh, way of speaking hyper-whiteness because it was almost like they were being so white that they weren't white anymore, that the white kids who were hegemonic or the most accepted or the most popular were kids who incorporated a little bit of something that was considered a little black. Um, And that was almost like part of what it meant to be white. Had you thought, uh, previous to doing all of this research much, about the uh, about the class and race issues that uh, nerdy with which nerdiness is so fraught. Yeah, I mean, you know, I, I read a whole chapter on how um, ethnicity and no, how notions of of ethnic groups and notions of what a nerd is um, have had common ancestors. Um, you know, for example, if you look at the 18th century caricatures from, from Germany and England of Jews, they look not unlike um, Lewis and Gilbert from Revenge of the Nerds. You know, they have these sort of flailing skinny limbs and spectacles falling off, and they're doing things like falling off of bicycles or, or being wimpy in other ways. And the idea was that they were supposed to be brainy and, and calculating and smart, but utterly incapable of um, fighting or doing anything physical or being physically graceful or strong. And when you look at the things people wrote about Jews at, at that point, it's, it's also similar. It's, you know, that they're calculating and, and, sh- and thrifty and, and cunning and they're good at adding and you know, they're, um, they're not able to brawl in the streets or, or do anything with their bodies. And so... Um, you know, and they certainly were considered kind of invalid as romantic prospects. And so um, there was a lot, you could argue that the function the nerd um, fills in our uh, cultural landscape now is not unlike the function the Jew um, filled in the cultural landscape of England and Germany in, in say, the 18th and 19th centuries. Tell me about how uh, how this cultural group's self-identity has transformed itself over the period from, you know, the 70s when the archetype first was established to, to today. Well, the huge change has been the Internet. That, um, you know, it used to be there were actual 
clubhouses, basically, where nerds got together. There's still one here in the L.A. area called the Los Angeles Science Fantasy Society. But it's a rapidly aging population because the people who would be joining that clubhouse now are all finding each other online. Um, you know, when I went back and talked to one of my friends from high school, he said, you know, one of the reasons I play Worlds of Warcraft with the headsets and all that stuff, because that's where my friends are, you know? And so I think the big, the big difference is that, um, that social cohesion happens for nerds largely on the internet now and where it used to happen on over ham radio and, and over the letters section and in, in science fiction magazines and, um, and in physical get togethers. Although of course there's still things like comic con, which are huge nerd get togethers. Um, and so whether the changing pop culture representations of nerds have changed how nerds perceive themselves is something that's kind of hard to, to figure out or, or, or answer yes or no to, but um, whether the ways nerds find each other and how they interact has changed. Absolutely. That's been the huge change in nerd culture. What was the hardest thing for you to write about yourself in the book? What was the, what was the most difficult thing to revisit? It's a good question. I think, I think the most difficult thing to revisit was probably my realization that I so wanted to not be a nerd when I was a kid that I was willing to turn my back on the most loyal friends I had. And I think there's, um, you know, in all the talk of, of nerd pride and that kind of thing we have now and like nerds are cool and whatever, I think it's so interesting that nobody talks about nerds being self-loathing because surely they are. Um, surely I wasn't the only kid who hated being a nerd, even though I knew I was. You know, I think I kind of assumed that the veneer I created in, in high school was um, something people believed in. And then I wrote this book and, and started talking to people about what I had done and assumed they'd all be like, oh, yeah, you're not a nerd. That's weird. And instead, people were like, oh, yeah, is that how you're proud of being a nerd? Cool. <laughs> and um, or like, you know, what's it like being a nerd or, you know, stuff like that. Um, and, uh, you know, I went on last call with Carson Daly the other night and uh, he was like, are you a nerd at the end? And I was like, oh, well, you know, you're a cool guy. You can tell me whether I'm a nerd or not. And I could see him thinking <laughs> really hard about how to be nice in this situation. He was just like, oh, well, you know, it seems kind of judgmental to, to, to say, you know. And so, um, you know, clearly people think of me as a nerd. And, and that was something that was, I, in, in some part of me, difficult to accept, too. Is there any more definitional person to think that you're a nerd than Carson Daly? No, that was why I was so devastated. <laughs> Benjamin Nugent, author of American Nerd, The Story of My People, who spoke in 2008. For my full conversation with Benjamin, go to MaximumFun.org or just use the internet to search for American Nerd and The Sound of Young America, which was the name of our show back then. Every week, we like to close the show with a recommendation from yours truly. It's The Outshot. Many movies have been made about an aging burglar and one last score. Very few are as lonely, sad, and beautiful as Michael Mann's Thief. James Kahn plays the title character. He's a criminal and he spent most of his life as a ward of the state though the state 
wasn't much of a warden. His early years, he was an orphan. His young adulthood, he was in jail. He learned in that time that to survive in the system, he has to deaden himself inside. Cut all ties, no family, no relationships. He has to learn not to care even about his own life. In this scene, he talks to a girl at an all-night diner, a girl he's maybe in love with. He's just told a story about beating a man very nearly to death in prison with a pipe and being beaten very nearly to death himself. Uh, you, don't, uh, you don't count months and years. Uh, you don't do time that way. What do you mean? Why? Why? You got to forget time. Uh, you got to not give a f- if you live or die. Uh, you got to get to where nothing means nothing. Nothing, you know? And then uh, I know from that day that I survived because I achieved that mental attitude. It's funny that Michael Mann earned his Hollywood stripes with the crazy South Florida colors of Miami Vice. Funny because few directors have ever had such facility with the loneliness of night. In Thief, Khan drives a black Cadillac coupe alone on the streets of Chicago under the L tracks, through the rain and past flashing lights. For long stretches, the screen is mostly black. The thief works in the night, even, by the light of the chemical fire as he cuts through a safe. So the question is, can he live like this without connection? Does he have to? Or can he find something else? He hands the girl in the diner a collage from his wallet. We see it briefly, a woman's face, children a picture of his jailhouse mentor, and some skulls. What is this? That is my life. Uh, And uh, nothing, nobody can stop me from making that happen. And uh, right there, that would be you. Did you cut these out from um, magazines and... Yeah, newspapers, whatever. What What all of these dead people. Inside, you are on ice from time. Uh, you can't even die right, you know. And here, here, people grow. They get old, they die, children come after. Just a cycle, you know. And so, to change the course of his life, one last score. There are always complications, of course, when you're going for one last score. And in Thief, it's no different. Except that it is. Because usually a movie like this is about a triumph. Of cleverness, usually. Maybe of violence. The point is, the guy we like walks off with the money at the end. Thief, though, is different. It's quiet and desolate. And it's not about triumph. It's about acquiescence to the night. That's my outshot. That's it for this week's Bullseye. The show's produced by Speaking Into Microphones. Our producer is Julia Smith. Our senior producer is Nick White. Our intern is Henry Malofsky. Interstitial music provided to us by Dan Wally. Our theme music is provided by The Go Team, thanks to them and their label, Memphis Industries. You can find this show and all past Bullseye shows for free at MaximumFun.org. You can also subscribe to our podcast. 
We're putting on a cruise this fall, the Atlantic Ocean Comedy and Music Festival, with lots of amazing comedy and music acts. You can find more information at boatparty.biz. That's boatparty.biz. And one last time, Mark McGrath of Sugar Ray, I feel really bad that maybe I had a role in you deciding to cancel your cruise. And so I just want you to know, you can come on our cruise for free. Got that, Mark McGrath? If you have thoughts about the show, you can always email me. My email address is jesse at MaximumFun.org. That's my real email address. That's about it. Just remember, all great radio hosts have a signature sign-off. Bullseye with Jesse Thorne is a production of MaximumFun.org and is distributed by NPR. NPR.